Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. Well, today we are sitting down with Seattle Super Chef, James Beard Award winner, Tom Douglas. Tom's a good friend. He's a mentor. He's an investor in the company that I've created here that is producing this podcast, Ava's Wild. And he's also been an executive producer on both of my documentaries, The Breach and The Wild, over the years. And today we really dig into what this last two years have meant for him both with the COVID pandemic and evolving as a restaurateur, uh, his love for wild salmon, where that overlaps with the Bristol Bay story, and how he treats people that come to work for him. It's a really fascinating conversation, and I'm excited to bring it to you today. Also, for the holidays, we've got some new stuff on the Ava's Wild website. Most notably, five years in the making, we've got Ava's Wild Salmon Jerky, which is brought to you from the pristine waters of Bristol Bay. It's a little bit smoky, a little bit salty, a little bit sweet, and just a little bit of a heat on the back of your palate as it goes down. It's awesome. Really psyched about it. And remember, every single purchase that's made through Ava's Wild, there's a donation made on your behalf to the people of Bristol Bay, led by United Tribes of Bristol Bay to defend Bristol Bay from things like the proposed pebble mine. Hope you're enjoying your holiday season so far, and I hope you enjoy today's podcast with Tom Douglas. We'll see you down the trail. How do you say what you Chef Tom Douglas, welcome. Hi. <laughs> I feel like I've seen you before. I know. I yeah. think uh, we're, we got to stop meeting like this. Well, usually I ask, where are you no, coming let's to Let's just us? be clear. We need to keep meeting like this. This is a very professional atmosphere, and normally you and I are kind of like piecemealing it together. So this is awesome. We're at Victory Studios, and yes. I haven't been here in 25 years. I think I taped a commercial here a long time ago. Well, um, you just stole all my thunder. Thank you. And But it, it, that's the whole point. Yeah, we're here in person, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And Victory Studios is still here on 15th, and they're rocking, and they're doing all kinds of great stuff. And I know it's a, probably a good you know, halfway point from your work life, going from the north down to the city. And- it is. I, if Ballard is north, uh, then yes. <laughs> so Ballard to the urban core is uh, definitely, this is halfway, and, uh, you know, we have a professional studio too downtown where I do my radio That's show right. every week. So it's uh, this is lovely. Yeah, I agree. It's a it's a big upgrade from uh, just doing the laptops from over yonder. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just dig right into this here. Let, I like to start these things out by learning a little bit more about your story. So if you would tell us your story, you didn't just get plopped into Seattle with a beautiful restaurant and hospitality empire all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. How did you come into this work that you do? Uh, well. Boy, there's so many uh, different angles on this. I'm a worker bee, so uh, the restaurant uh, industry is a worker bee mentality. And uh, I was um, 18, working in a place called the Hotel DuPont in Wilmington, Delaware, because I didn't want to go to college. And my guidance counselor in high school said, well, you should try this out. And uh, so I tried it. I liked it, except I was a little bit antsy. I was uh, 18 again. And I don't know how you were at 18, but I was ready to be out of the house and ready to be on the road. Yep. And no matter what job I had, it couldn't have held me there. So especially without the, the struggle of going to university, which uh, I was the only one of eight kids of my parents that did not go. Uh, and that still rankles my mother to this mm-hmm. day. Uh, I'm the black sheep of the family from that perspective. Uh, on the other hand, I've done pretty well, and so she's pretty proud of that. So hey, turned 19 on the road when I got in my car. I packed everything in my Chevy station wagon. Literally, everything that I owned. Uh, my dad uh, had given me 150 bucks, like he did every one of his children as they left the house. I had saved 300 of my own. Uh, I had bought a car for 300. 
uh, and I made it to Seattle 40 some days later and was out of cash. And so I got a job cooking, which uh, still to this day, if anyone wants to get a job cooking, please come see me <laughs> because it's hard out there. <laughs> uh, but I got, got a job cooking and I've been kind of going at it ever since. You know, I've done a little bit of this and that over the years, worked on the railroad, uh, built houses, um, sold wine, uh, you know, on a wholesale basis, which is how I met my lovely wife. Uh, she was selling wine retail. I was selling wine wholesale. So she was my customer. Mm. And then uh, uh, we got hooked up there. And we've been together now 38 years. Wow. We have a daughter and a brand new grandson, Hercules. Hercules. It's the best. Yeah, he's the best. I like the cuddle pictures that I've been able to see. Um, you know, anybody that's been familiar with the restaurant industry knows that COVID was devastating to restaurateurs. Mm -hmm. um, and I know personally, you've had many shifts in the dish pit and long nights, but you and your team are still here. What, and, you know, let me just jump in on that. Sure. Because, um, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a misconception about that because um, it wasn't equal where the the drama was really. Uh, it was in the beginning, but mm -hmm. uh, our restaurants are in that urban core, right? And they're really at least 60 to 70% of that business is international travel. It's business travel. It's business people in office buildings downtown. You know, it's a different dynamic than a neighborhood. So when everything went down, um, I just couldn't figure out why the restaurants in Ballard were still busy and mine were absolutely empty. Right. And then you would go to, even to the base of Queen Anne or any place that there was a real neighborhood, uh, the restaurants were still uh, doing a little bit of business. But places like mine that uh, was doing, you know, eight or $10 million a year in business, I was doing one cover a night at Lola, for example, which was one of our busiest restaurants, right? So um, it was a dynamic hit. But what I will say from there is that the government jumped in so quickly, which was a shock to me, that it, it softened the blow of the PPP loans, payroll, uh, payroll protection plan, mm -hmm. uh, were a huge benefit. It's the reason we are here today, that I have anything more than my building that I owned, and that's why I'm not involved in a bunch of lawsuits with landlords, right? Because this PPP money uh, really jumped in the middle of all that process and took what was a horrific situation and made it livable. And so here we are chatting today. You know, I, right. I'm off the line uh, for lunch today, which was, wasn't the case there for a while. But uh, we none of us knew that was coming. I mean, I don't know if your business uh, was able to get any of those, but many, many, many businesses around the city got that money to keep things afloat in our town. And uh, I guess I'm saying all this because sometimes people get on the government like it doesn't work. That worked. Mm -hmm. That kept people busy. It uh, was enabled me to send out checks to all my former team. Um, it just enabled so much, you know, to get that square with my landlords, to, to pay my utility bills, to get square with the sales tax. I mean, people don't realize. I had collected sales tax of over a half million dollars for February that all of a sudden I have no business. You know, that's, uh, it, it was amazing. So... A lot of gratitude there. Um, so, I'm so grateful for the programs that came up. It, yeah. Well, look, uh, this is a perfect segue. I mean, nobody knew how to face this pandemic. The mm -hmm. government, I mean, we think the government is right. like some omnipotent force out there. Like, these are people trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And and often trying to figure out the right thing to do. Correct. Yeah. I know. So so this, this is, I, I agree, um, I, I think all in all, you know, we fared okay. Yep. Especially people... Uh, in, in this this line of work, but you know what I, I think was so interesting to me was watching your innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, just like the government had to pivot and figure things out, like you definitely had to pivot and figure things out. Contracted, kind of brought the the team home, you know. And can you just talk a little bit about like how how you did that? What what were some of the innovations that you came up with to to keep it going and make yeah. it real? Well, you know, it's horrific what happened. You know, you got people that put in 25, 30 years of their life into our business that all of a sudden were given a five-day no five notice that things couldn't carry on. I can't afford to pay you anymore, right? If I had known PPP was going to be six weeks away, I mean, certainly I would have done things differently, but none of us knew that was coming. Um, so we just pivoted right away. You know, the, the 
we went outdoors. We put a pizza oven on our dock at our warehouse in Ballard, and we started. I started in the pantry and in pastry, and we started building a new restaurant on wheels because I still needed to run my rub business out of the same warehouse. And so uh, we put everything on wheels. And so we would literally, when I got my big tractor-trailer rigs full of jars for my rub and spices, uh, I would move the kitchen, even during service, and then uh, unload with our fork truck and then move it all back in place uh, 15 minutes later Mm. and just beg forgiveness from customers who got delayed for a minute for their pizza. Uh, And so that's the first thing that we did. We went from 865 people to nine uh, overnight from March 15th to March 16th. That was the the difference. And uh, it, it um, it was dramatic and super sad for me. And to this day... Uh, you know, some of my former team won't talk to me because they felt like I let them down. And I get it. I understand. I, I don't think what they don't understand is I didn't have a choice. They could work, but I couldn't pay them. And so that was, that was just the way it was. And until PPP happened. Um, and then, you know, by that time, all those folks, uh, many of those folks were on unemployment with, uh, with an enhanced unemployment. So there wasn't uh, the, S, the, the real need to come back right away. Well, look, every, everybody you know, again, kind of stumbling through this thing, took a lot of hits. And um, who knew how, how what, what the proper channel is to yeah. get, get through this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you've been a stalwart member of Seattle and the Pacific Northwest community for many years. Why do you believe developing a strong sense of place brings purpose to individuals and communities? Boy, I just think... You know, not unlike Bristol Bay or whatever, we all have our story and we all have our community. Uh, everybody does. Uh, I, don't, I don't care if they're anti-government, for government, whatever. You have your, your little world that you live in. And, you know, oddly enough, in downtown Seattle, like it's three blocks. It's not even like, it's not even from Stewart to James Street. It's more like Stewart to Olive, like three blocks, Virginia, right? Uh, I, I know that doesn't quite make sense, but we live in this small little bubble in our life and, and um to me, I've always taken that very personally to make sure that my bubble is safe. The people in my bubble are safe. If I've got money, you've got money. You know, if, if uh, I've got time, uh, we always talk about it in our company as the three T's, your, your talent, your treasure, and your tenacity, right? Uh, if, you've got the, if you've got all of that, you should be able to offer that to everyone in your bubble, in your community. And I've always just felt strongly that um, I personally... Uh, don't want to be the guy that scrapes the cream off the top. You know, I want, sure, I want to get rich. I want to, I want to make money. I want to do all that, but I want everyone to, to share in that success. And uh, some of those things uh, come down to like just having health care. You know how many people go broke because they don't have health care? Right, a lot. They, a lot. Yeah. It's, a, it's a big problem. Uh, so I fought for national health care. I, I believe in it. I've had health care in my company since year uh the end of year one when i couldn't even afford it we got health care because to me that's a basic human right uh and i the idea that if you're wealthy you're okay and if you're not you're you die is is a, a basic problem to me the whole thing like i get i see these ads for saint jude's hospital in mm-hmm. memphis right mm-hmm. they do amazing work why is it that we need to send our money to saint jude's to cure uh, saint jude's to cure cancer for these kids. Why isn't that a basic human right? You shouldn't have to go to Memphis. It should be every community in our country should be working to save these children or anybody for that matter, right? And so um, when you go back to your sense of place and sense of being, Mm -hmm. Seattle and I fit. You know, we're a very progressive town uh, and I feel very dramatically. Now, am I as far left as some of the socialist council members that we have are? Absolutely. You know, I'm not. You, You can't have it both ways. Those same council members are spending all the cash driven by capitalism, real estate uh, sales, all those sorts of things. They're, they're spending that cash as fast as they get it. Um, you can't have it both ways. You can't expect that and then vilify the business community and then take the cash that it's generating and, and all of a sudden everything's hunky-dory. It just doesn't work that way. Um, I'm going to take a little side road down this channel just for a second. Um, it seems like in this recent election for Seattle mayor, there has been a somewhat of a mandate that look, we want this is not working. This direction mm-hmm. we're going in. Um, do you do you sense that? Do you feel like we're kind of at a a moment where it could go one way or another? Mandate is a big word. Mm-hmm. No, I don't feel that. Okay, I don't. Um, uh, 
you know, we have a, an interesting election coming up here on December 7th, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the uh, Shama Sawant recall election. Right. You're going to see, in my opinion, that she gets um, kept in office overwhelmingly. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't, I think the, the disconnect is that, um, at, at least it's my opinion, that the uh, uh, elevated income community does not recognize the chasm that is out there uh, between the haves and have-nots. And um, I am not a, a Miss Sawant fan. I'm, I'm, you know, she doesn't care for me. I don't care for her. That's fine. Uh, I still respect her position in her office and all, all of that. But um, my guess is she's going to be uh, reelected overwhelmingly and that, that um, there's a lot of angst out there. So mandate... You know, you got to remember who was running for city attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was pretty out there in her views, mm-hmm. uh, and so, so we elected a Republican city attorney. You know, we'll see what happens. Can't do much without the rest of the, the rest of the city going along with her. And uh, Teresa Mosqueda got reelected easily, and she's one of the most progressive on the council. Uh, so, um, she dislikes me. I don't care much for her either. So it's like, but I'm still I, I I'm an old fashioned blue Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just not a socialist. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there is so much discord and, you know, it's like we're fractionating inside of silos mm-hmm. that even seem to be, should be somewhat hom- homogenous, you know, and we're still finding ways to divide ourselves. I I think my observation is, I, I don't know either what, what's going to happen mm-hmm. with the recall. Um, I think uh, I think we have come to a place where people are... Um, weary of the quality of life that has de- sort of degenerated in, mm-hmm. da- in the downtown corridor. Mm-hmm. Um, how that's translated into action, I don't know. But I, I do know that this sense of place is strong here. Mm-hmm. And it really <laughs> has so much more to do than the concrete we've, we've you know, constructed here. Um, speaking of place, we, we have this icon here, Wild Salmon. Mm-hmm. It connects us. It connects you and me, um, as well as orcas, otters, seals, trees, and all the people who get to take part in the blessed feast when they return to spawn every year. Can you tell me how your relationship with these critters started with (laughs) the consciousness of a can Mm -hmm. uh, to becoming a champion for them here in our home and, and beyond? Yeah. Well, mine started in a bumblebee can for sure. <laughs> Friday nights in a Catholic family, uh, it was either canned salmon or Mrs. Paul's fish sticks. So it was uh, th- that's how my relationship with salmon started, and I hated it. It was just like the worst thing I ever tried. It looked terrible. Big orange <laughs> loaf coming out of a can is awful. Uh, you know, I didn't really much know about salmon until I got here. Mm-hmm. Uh, back on the East Coast, uh, you know, shrimp and flounder are the kings and crab, blue crabs, right? So, uh, uh, but I didn't know much about salmon. And then uh, early on here, you know, walking through the Pike Place Market, I, you know, I distinctly remember the first time I got my first sous chef job. It was at a restaurant called Manjabevi Restaurant on mm. 2nd and Pine in the Doyle Building. And I walked with my fellow chef into the market in our whites. And, you know, the fishmonger started whistling at us and, like, just totally making fun of our uniforms. So I never wore those again. I was totally shamed out of my whites. And, um, but I, I distinctly, you know, those mountains of fish, the mountains of crab that were down there, uh, fascinating to me. I had never seen anything quite like it. So the Pike Place Market is near and dear to my soul when it comes to understanding where the food came from. And even then, those guys didn't know much about it. They were slinging salmon. And they might have known a species issue, but they weren't totally in on how it was caught, how it was bled, how fast it got to the marketplace, you know, how long out of the water, you know, all the things that kind of developed over the last 30, 35, 40 years. A guy named John Raleigh I mm. hooked up with, and you've heard him a lot, but he's the one who recognized uh, that we weren't, putting enough value on these fish and that uh, when they were handled correctly, they were even a better mm-hmm. uh, product. Uh, that's where the whole Copper River thing happened and that's where some of our good oyster conversations have come about. Mussels, um, certainly crab is a little bit different in that world. He never really got much involved with crab, but to me it's important about how crab is handled and how the fishery is managed. And 
So it just became a passion for me. And uh, I have never been, as you know, uh, never been one to say, stop doing this, stop doing that. But I have been one for managing, Mm -hmm. managing the process and managing the fisheries so that we're not raping the ocean. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be interesting to see if we're doing a good job or not. We feel like we are. But, you know, fisheries are struggling all over at the same time. Even though Bristol Bay is doing great, uh, there's other fisheries that are struggling all over. So are we really managing it well or... um, are we waiting for the other foot to drop, you know, as uh, the ocean temperatures change and climate issues continue to wreak havoc across the world? So, Yeah. Uh, clearly, there is a lot out there that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we do know, and, and this is why I've been on this tack, and I know this is a part of the reason you've been on this tack for so long as well. Bristol Bay uh, is this unique place in all the world. Um, you've been leading the charge in our shared mantra to eat wild, save wild. You're an investor in Ava's Wild. You're an executive producer on both of my films. Um, it's obviously means something to you. Why, yeah. why has Bristol Bay and the fight to protect it become so important to you? Well, I think for the longest time, you don't know where you can jump in, right? You need something small enough to, to put your finger on because to, to talk about salmon as a worldwide issue, like the North Atlantic salmon, you're like, what do I know? What can I, how can I affect it? Bristol Bay felt like a place where I could jump in mm-hmm. and be, uh, be effective and not solve the problem, but certainly help uh, to talk about the, the issues that were on the table when it comes to the mine or overfishing or, or whatever, uh, food for the native, native people that live in the area. And so it, there's some simple concepts there that we, we've talked about for years now, which is eat wild to save wild. By, by, and jobs are really the key, right? Economy is really the key on that. Because a lot of people still don't get it. They don't get the fact that if you buy that wild fish, or if you, if you look back and see what that fish was selling for before John Raleigh helped put a price on its head that was more reasonable because it's worth more, right? That fish is definitely worth as much as any Wagyu beef going oh, yeah. on a per pound basis for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, so anyway, so if you, if you can put an economy around that fish so that the locals can make their living, so that the fishermen here in Seattle and the boat owners can make their living, then we don't need the mine. And that's really, it was a simple back and forth. There's like, ah, ah, light bulb kind of stuff. You know, when, when you can give them what they need, you know, they want to put their kids in school. They want to feed them a healthy meal. Uh, they need that cash to do that. So let's give them the cash for this elevated seafood product that is self-sustaining if we handle it correctly right. uh, forever. Uh, and uh, instead of digging up their, <laughs> digging up the area and, and putting arsenic and stuff into our waters and creating havoc. Well, we're at a moment that is the most hopeful it's been um, since President Obama was in office. And I well, see, yeah, I see well, that's you, only four years. I see you shaking your head. And well, I'm not, I, I, I don't mean I, to I be negative, this. but we got to get this done. I agree. Yeah. I, I agree. It, it, it makes me, I knock on wood, it makes me nervous when people ask what's going on. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a good moment. It's a nice pause. And we got to go the distance. Because, look, I, I don't know if you saw the, the UW's projections for next year. They're projecting 71.2 million mm-hmm. salmon to return to sockeye, mm-hmm. to return to Bristol Bay again. What happens in the natural cycle of things when it comes, you know, invariably it will, it's at the peak it's ever been, it's the highest it's ever right. been in Bristol Bay. It will come down. Yeah. That's just the way it's, it, it happens. It's the ebb and it, flow. It's the ebb and the flow. What happens when we come off of that plateau and the next iteration of Pebble comes in and says, Hey, how are our mining jobs looking right now? Mm-hmm. This is the point that you're driving home, and this is the point that that I think we're going to be doing a new film, a final film mm-hmm. in this chapter, and it's going to be looking at where from here, yeah. where, do, where do we go from here? So, well, here's what I'll say about that, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you are much more of a pie in the sky kind of guy. You're you're very uh, emotional, and and uh, I tend to be a little bit more of a realist as you probably know, in our relationship over the last 10 years or so. Um, this is never going away. When you right. have that much money in the ground, uh, in gold and copper and whatever else is in there, I'm sure there's more, um, it's just, this problem is never going to be uh, going away. And uh, we're going to have to be diligent for the rest of our life and our kids and mm-hmm. 
everybody. This is this is not a, an issue that you can put to bed. Look at what Mr. Trump did just with some national parks in Utah just in his four years that were had been put away for 50, 60, 75 years by Mr. Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt and places. I, I don't know the exact names of who put what where, but he undid that with in a matter of uh, one swipe of the pen. Right. Uh, so these kind of things, I don't care if it's Obama or Trump or Biden or whoever, these things know when there's that much money at hand, they'll never go away. So it's just, uh, to me, it's we have to, have to have a system in place to be diligent about f- the fight. Right. Forever. That's right. And knowing that this thing, the reason this system works so perfectly is because it has not been constructed. It has not been dammed. Mm-hmm. It has not been uh, infrastructed yet. And, and Which is one of the bigger issues, right? Is just the roads there is one of the huge issues. That, to me, way beyond the issue of a catastrophic event mm-hmm. of a mine being built and a toxic uh, t- tailings dam failure is the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. That is what, ha- what has happened here. It's what's happened every time humans have come into salmon country. When you build the infrastructure, you open the doorway to all of the rest of the industry that can come in there. Once that genie's out of the bottle, it's gone. Mm -hmm. So to your point, we've got to stay on this with messaging about this. I believe bringing people there, I'm going to get you up there. (laughs) I believe uh, telling stories about this place, having some semblance of experience eating the food from there, you know, really is at this core. If you value this thing, if you love this thing, you're going to want to keep it going. And the way to keep it going is to leave it alone in terms of hardcore extractive Mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking of industry, um, I want to talk about supply chain for a minute. Knowing where our food comes from has, is not important. It's paramount now. It's become, I think for most people in this country anyway, we're really aware of where our food comes from or want to be aware of where our food comes more than ever before. Um, tell us a bit about Prosser Farms and why this place is so important to you and your wife, Jackie. Uh, personally, the yeah. number one reason why it's so important to me is it makes her so happy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that is, uh, I know that's, uh, I don't mean that to be cliche as in a male and female kind of way, but uh, she loves it there. And when she's happy, I'm happy in the, in the you know, it's just in that loving kind of like, oh my God, you're, you just love, you love hell, this down to your bones. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, so that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, she's always felt strongly about uh, going about her business organically. Uh, that's interesting because farming is hard. We think the restaurants are hard, fishing's hard, whatever. Farming is hard. And, uh, you know, just this year, for example, because of the heat wave that we had back in June, we would normally have 3,500 tomato plants in the ground. We would normally get, uh, we keep records every year, Yeah. we would normally get 80 to 90 pounds of tomatoes per plant. Wow. Uh, awesome, right? That's Beautiful, incredible. organic, yeah. lovely tomatoes, all watered by the melting snows of the Cascades coming down the Yakima River and being sucked up into our fields uh, and, and redistributed, right? So this year, mm, we didn't even get a pound of tomatoes per plant because that heat wave that happened uh, here for three days and over there for almost six days of uh, five and a half days of 116 or hotter right. killed all the, all the tomato plants, just sent them in the shock. And, you know, so at the same time, we doubled our melon production. And wow. uh, what else? Eggplants did beautifully, right? But all the green beans dropped their flowers. It was too hot. Uh, right. So... Farming is hard, and Mother Nature is difficult, uh, and uh, there is something so rich about that, uh, that struggle uh, that uh, generations and generations of people have gone through before us. It's rich in its, um, in its life-giving soul. Yeah. Uh, owning your food in that kind of way and owning the process, uh, when I talk to my customers about Farm to Table, I... <laughs> I'm being really serious. I get it. No, I know. And it's not, uh, it's not, and I don't know that it's like only buying chicken under plastic wrap in a grocery store. You never really know what that chicken was like. Well, we just harvested six of our oldest chickens. You know, we know what that's like Uh, every day, cleaning out the coop, grabbing the eggs, doing a lot. You know, a lot of people do that. 
But for us, uh, that was new to me, is taking that process all the way to the beginning. And uh, it's it's awesome. And it's it, it's infected the way I do business. You yeah. know, I really appreciate the farm produce much more than I did in the beginning when we first started. I, the effort is valiant. And uh, I, I, I'm all for farmers. Clearly, you're not... You're not supplying all of the food no, that you serve no, in your restaurants, to, but just to the point you just made, you know the story intimately. You know what it it, it takes mm-hmm. to bring tomatoes to somebody's plate. Yeah, that's huge. Um, can we just talk for a minute about what, given what we know and we're experiencing right now with this rapid rise in inflation and supply chain screwed up all over the place? Is there a vision, is there a sustainable vision for a more localized, a more regional supply chain model that your experience with Prosser Farms could serve to uh, educate the rest of us? Yeah, but that's got nothing to do with uh, supply chain issues that we're facing today. I I do think we're in a temporary spot. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, certainly inflation, just like, you know, the the fish quotas goes up and down and uh, we're in a time of rising inflation. But... um, I think the supply chain as far and the process of Prosser Farm, I think the genie's out of that bottle. I just think people shop on price so much. I mean, yeah. uh, that uh, to get people to recognize that it's going to cost them 25 to 50% more for a smaller farm, hand-raised food, I, I just don't think people are willing to do it. And I certainly, as a restaurateur, you can't be the only one out there doing that. You might if you have a 20-seat restaurant where you can charge, but in a bigger company like mine, there's just no way. Um, so I don't think that's pandemic-related personally. Right. I mean, there's some really nuts-and-bolts pandemic issues. Like, I can't get jars for my spice rub right now. So, you know, that, those, kind of, those kind of issues. I can't get theater cups for my concessions at the Paramount and Moore theaters. Um, those kind of things are going to settle themselves out. But farming... That's a that's a hard one. Sure, um, and, and, and that's right. I, I yes, the, being a, a business owner uh, now, the there's a actual mathematical formula that is going to allow you to stay in a business or not, and keep doing the things that you you know want to do and the things you want to achieve. I wonder about the cost opportunity though, or maybe even the idea that um, telling the story about what is it going to cost if we don't fix these bigger things like working with our, the earth, working with systems that are more um, adept at naturally producing things, working with the soil as opposed to plowing everything, maybe doing crop covers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, are we at a point where we, do you think that people have heard the alarm bell on where we're at with climate change and supply chain fragility to perhaps dig in and invest in a better way of doing things? Well, again, I don't think it's got anything uh, pandemic-related. People have been looking at these, you know, this hydroponic gardening, vertical farming. Uh, but climate change is just a bigger issue than the pandemic, uh, for sure. And it's certainly a bigger issue than uh, supply chain issues that are out there. And they're, they're out there. Um, but, you know, supply chain issues to me right now is whether I can get Jameson whiskey mm-hmm. or not, mm-hmm. or if mm-hmm. I can only get Bushmills whiskey. You know, it's like, where, where's the container? It's on a boat somewhere. It was supposed to be here a month ago. What happened? Those are supply chain issues right now. Uh, what you're talking about is much more organic and substantial in the problem size mm-hmm. than what supply chain is, in my opinion. And it's been interesting, the fragility of the supply chain. That's been a a real eye-opener, and it's really a little bit like owning the farm now like we do. It's like, oh, I see the process now that I used to just take for granted. Uh, but uh, there are climate change issues, like no water in California, right, right? where we're right. used to getting romaine lettuce anytime we want. Romaine lettuce is on a circuit, by the way, just like oranges and lemons and limes. It's on a circuit, right? It's got the whole south for whether there's romaine farms in Texas, Arizona, and Florida. And, you know, and it's just uh, the buyers are the ones who buy from all the different... Uh, commercial uh, lettuce farmers, right? And there's commercial citrus farmers. And, uh, of course, uh, S- South America is a big supplier of this and that. And, you know, Peru sells us more asparagus than Washington State does. Washington State used to be the big- biggest mm-hmm. asparagus farm. You, you know why that is, by the way? No, I don't. Tell me. Yeah. Well, because we paid them to plant asparagus instead of 
cacao for cocaine. Oh, yeah. interesting. Not cacao. What's the word I want? Coca. Coca, or mm-hmm. whatever they make cocaine out of. So, mm-hmm. uh, so they're now very large asparagus now, Competitors. Farmers. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> exactly. Comes around, goes around. Well, yeah. you know, the reason I'm, I'm circling around all this, of course, is coming into our, our next question here, which is um, y- you have organically been a leader in creating change, uh, starting with paying, paying people a fair wage and making sure people have benefits and really, really reaching out to our homeless community, um, working with things like Fair Start. Mm -hmm. Food Lifeline. Food Lifeline's a huge deal. And I feel like um, you are, you chefs are on the front line with social change that is going to be necessary. So um, why do you firmly believe that business can be a force for good? And can you give us some other examples of that work that you really um, have, it's near and dear to your heart and you've, you've tried to work on over your career? Yeah, I'm frustrated with that right now. You know, I've been supporting Food Lifeline for close to 40 years now, and I'm frustrated that the problem gets bigger instead of smaller. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm not really, I don't really know what to think about that. And, um, you know, it's not much I took from my Catholic school education. I'm the, about the least religious person, but I do... Uh, think about the loaves and fishes story, right? And teaching yeah. people how to fish instead of just giving them fish. And um, I do have a side of me that socially wants us to make a contract out there that um, that there's no freebies, mm-hmm. you know? And I, that, I know that goes against my democratic values in some ways, uh, but um, uh, like somebody says, do you think people, if somebody's on welfare or getting uh, unemployment, should they have to work? To me, if they're able-bodied, yeah, I, I think we should have a program where they have to work. Now, an emergency situation like we have, which is where the uh, an employee puts away a bit of, you know, the government takes money uh, from every paycheck, and I contribute to every paycheck so that when somebody is out of work, they have a window of time where they have some money to keep their apartment and keep their health care. That's awesome. And mm-hmm. I, I'm a big believer in that social contract. But... Uh, Long-term social programs, to me, they need to be inter- more interactive and figure out how, how we move forward. Uh, but um, when it comes to how business is in there, that's what I was saying earlier about the whole socialist side of things. Either we all go socialist, we get national health care, we have a national minimum wage, like every household gets 25 grand a month or whatever, whatever that number is, and... Uh, we figure that out, but this whole this whole combination to me is not working super well. And it, when you look, I, I haven't done enough study on this to maybe accurately tell the story. But when you look at the Nordic countries, uh, where the social contract to me is a bit stronger, uh, you know, free tuition, which I'm all for. Education mm-hmm. should not have to be paid for. Uh, making sure there's food on the table, um, maybe basic rent uh, infrastructure. Uh, I'm, I'm for a lot of these social contracts, but, you know, oil money is paying a, a bunch of that. Sure is. And yeah. uh, so, uh, and they don't have any salmon either. <laughs> They're all farmed. Yes. Uh, so they've, they've made some of their own screw-ups. Uh, so, but getting more towards that, what they call a democratic social kind of situation, I'm all for that. But you, you can't have it both ways. And so from a business standpoint, uh, you ask the directly to the question business needs to get involved mm-hmm. uh it m- makes me nuts that mcdonald's can open all these restaurants subway you name it and they don't have health care for their team mm-hmm. how is it that you can go open 25 restaurants and not have health care Le- at least i know i got big too mm-hmm. but at least we had health care we had vacation time we have sick pay we have a basic minimum wage of 15 or better which is now 17 and a half or better uh we we try to accommodate many of those kind of social issues within the way we ran our business. Now, you would never know that talking to our current city council members about me or many people who love to trash me online, uh, be, but because they don't know the reality of, of having to run a business. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is uh, the biggest downfall in our council and our mayor's office is uh, many of these folks have never run a business. One of the things that, um, going back to kind of the, the safety net, you know, Clearly, there are people that need that, and that that contract is there for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Especially Social Security. 
but another Medicaid. A, absolutely, yeah. and and that that's uh, I mean that's been a bipartisan thing. People, well, it was, yeah, yeah, it, mm. you know, from um, from uh, the the Johnson administration, and um, you know, one of the other points though I think about to, you're mentioning like should people work and should people have some some training like Fair Start does for for instance, um, it's it's the I, I know from my own life, like having a, a sense of pride, having a sense of self, having a sense of identity in the work that you do mm-hmm. is so important. Mm-hmm. It's it's beyond just getting a paycheck, paying the rent, you know, keeping the cycle going. I think for, as a, a as a human being, finding some purpose in that. Have you seen that with with people in in your team and 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 certainly some of these other um, efforts that that you've supported over the years? Well, c- certainly, and I've uh, I don't necessarily I don't necessarily not see it in other places where people aren't happy. I think that, you know that we've got a lot of mental health issues. There's a lot of areas where people just aren't able to work, and and I get it, and I'm I'm actually okay with that. And that's, uh, but I do think if you if people can find the right match for themselves, where that uh, that pride of, of their effort uh, comes through, I think it's awesome, and I see it every day in my team. You know, we, we have a motto in our company called get up and show up. And that is don't just come to work, show up, bring everything you got uh, to work. And I'll try to do the best in, in return. Uh, the other thing that we talk about in our company, which is not everyone can be a boss. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. Some people have the, the wherewithal. Some people have the uh, attention span. Some people have the want to do other things. Other people just want to go do their job. Right. And you have to be respectful of that, and we need both. Absolutely. It's just like not everyone needs to go to college. Some people need to go to... to uh, uh, trade school. Trade school, right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's what we're desperately short on right now. Uh, I, I didn't go to college. I didn't want to go. And uh, frankly, you don't have to go to college. My daughter did. She she desperately wanted to go, and then she went to law school afterwards, and, and she loves it, and... She's a smart kid, and, but we're very different people. We, we approach work in very different ways, uh, and she's much more cerebral than I ever was. I'm more brawn. Well, I, I have the same story. I left yeah. school early uh, to start acting, to start a career uh, in the arts, and um, you know, quickly realized that there was going to take some supplement to <laughs> <laughs> keep that thing going. Yeah, uh, but. Uh, I think this is a wonderful segue into. Um, I know it's tough out there g- across every sector trying mm-hmm. to bring people into the workforce. Um, but in specifically in your channel here, what advice do you have for young nascent chefs uh, or entrepreneurs that mm-hmm. that want to or are considering getting into or perpetuating? this industry uh, in the restaurant industry? I would say for more immediate success, hook up with a mentor. You know, be willing to put six months in with a mentor and uh, understand the lay of the line, and you'll have much more uh, success much more quickly. Uh, The uh, mentorship is something I try to do when people ask if they can have an hour of my time to talk about the business or this or that. Always. I mean, if yeah. I can do it, I, I, I do it. And yeah. that's just, a, it's an important thing to me. So to me, uh, you know, get off your butt, get out there and just try and, you know, look for some mentorship in areas that are interesting to you. Of course, we could love to have anyone come into our industry that that uh, has any interest in that. And, you know, it, it's surprising how little training you have to have in order to get on the job and then get on the job training. You just have to have some patience uh, that you're you're going to, Maybe not make as much as you want for a little while, but it's going to pay off in the end. The other thing I wanted to say, this probably goes back to your last question mm-hmm. beforehand. I am sick to death. Are you ready for this? I'm ready, man. Lay it on. Because I don't have too many opinions. No, no. I am sick to death of my wealthier friends sometimes, not all of them, but many, who consistently want to blame the unemployment system for the lack of workers out there, right? Mm-hmm. I am sick to death of of one percenters telling me, oh, they're just lazy. They don't want to, uh, they don't want a job. They're getting too much in unemployment, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's why there's nobody out there to work. It's nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's absolute nonsense. I don't care what part of your life or what generation, there's going to be freeloaders, right? Sure. That just happens. You know what it turns out? 
There's some 1% freeloaders, too, that are putting their money offshore and not paying any taxes and hiding it illegally. Turns out. Yeah. Yeah. And so they always want to kind of just blame everybody else and mm-hmm. not look at their own people and their own system of the tax system the way it is, right? And so uh, I, I firmly don't believe that our, our unemployment crisis right now or lack of workers has got anything to do with uh, things that we didn't know were going to happen. Like the baby boomers are retiring. Yeah. yeah. We have no truck drivers because a lot of those people were older and they take, took this opportunity to retire. Our government is insisting on no immigration virtually. Those people used to be the people who did the work in our kitchens, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and did a lot of work around uh, gardening and all sorts of things as they assimilated into our, into our life and became lawyers and doctors themselves and their mm-hmm. children did. Mm-hmm. We, we have put up so many barriers. All these people, there's no child care. So a lot of the people, well, 60% of the people that used to work for me were women. Uh, not that women are the only ones that can do child care, but traditionally that's where they've gotten shoved sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's not worth it right now to get a job and try and pay 100% child care. You're better off staying home with your kid. Uh, so there's a lot of places where these people are that are not just sitting on unemployment collecting free checks. And, and I'm sick of it, I'm sick of that connotation around the lack of workers in our world. So uh, it is nonsense. You're talking about one percenters in the working class, and um, I think it's a great segue into this. And this is, of course, just a massive topic. I have, I have some ideas about this, but I'm just interested personally in what your ideas about this. We are so divided and polarized in this country. Are we? Good, good. More on that. Okay. Despite our political and social differences, if we have them, from your point of view, where do we begin healing these perceived wounds? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that the the division is uh, certainly loudest on both ends, on both you know lefts and rights. Of right. Course. There's these super loud divisions, but. I would still guess that there's 60% of us that aren't divided one bit, mm-hmm. which is uh, in, a, in an election, a 60% would be considered a landslide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I do think that um, it is somewhat overwrought. Now, the, the, the ones that are on the outside fringes are very loud. Um, I, got, I was in Arizona a couple of weeks ago. I got out of my car, which my, was my friend's car, happened to have Washington license plates. And I heard this screech come to a stop. And this guy yells through his window, go back to your sissy blank, blank, <laughs> effing state of Washington, you effing prick. You know, like, just, and it's like, wow. and, and you know, I, I didn't even know. Like, how did he know I was from Washington? And then I realized my license plate said that. And he was just on me like fly on poop. Wow. And, you know, it turns out what was happening was there's a sign on the Walgreens door. My luggage had got lost, so I needed to go buy some sundries. It says, uh, wear a mask if you would. It didn't say you have to, but wear So I started putting my mask on. That's what set him off. Ah, mm-hmm. And so there's going to be that situation out there. Do I think that he's 50% of the population? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, what has been very interesting to me is the, uh, personally, is mm-hmm. in the last four years or so, the, to learn about uh, the undercurrent in our, in our country and um, the put-upon nature of many people uh, that I just didn't know about. Mm. And I think it's the great ignorance on my part. Uh, I just was unaware. I live in, we, you know, in Seattle, we live in this bubble uh, of democracy, but, you know, I see it just walk, driving over the Cascades into the red side of our state. I mean, I, I should have known more about it. Uh, and not that I'm saying every red voter is at all crazy not crazy rightist but mm-hmm. uh, I'm just saying I should have recognized and thought more about uh, the divide and what is what's really bugging people there was a really good SNL skit uh, recently if it was last week I think um, they had this game uh, identify the Republican and they'd bring out these these topics mm-hmm. and and uh, and of course all of them are like oh, that sounds exactly like me that mm-hmm. Your, to, to your point, like, I think that it's really true. There are people that just want those basic things. They mm-hmm. want their kids to do better than they did. They want to have a dependable food system. They want to have dependable work. They want to, you know, not, um, not uh, live in poverty, you know, 
clearly these basic human human elements. And maybe the, maybe this is a pie in the sky, as you you say, kind of idea. But the to me, the things that got done with most expediency were around my grandparents' table when we would sit around. And it's some of the fondest memories I have. Mm-hmm. Of course, eating my grandma's cooking, which was a big part of that. But um, people disarming and laying their weapons down and sitting around the table and eating together and realizing that we share the human experience together. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, that has not been possible, really, in the last two years. But um, do you see uh, some kind of manifestation of that going forward? Is there is there a way that we can physically experience each other and lay down that armor for a minute and and kind of re-engage with our humanity. Yeah. I don't think so. I think um, in that particular way, I think the whole shout-down atmosphere, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and the left is, you know, it's just as guilty as the right. Oh, uh, sure. The shout-down atmosphere makes some of those things impossible. I think um, maybe, maybe through talk, podcast, yeah. maybe through this and that, yeah. individual sit-downs, um, I was at a Chinese restaurant last night uh, on Queen Anne, and this one guy just went off on Biden, but you know, being like stealing all the money from Ukraine and and being bought off, and that Trump was so much better. And it's just you're going like, really? You don't think you don't think Trump did anything wrong? And, mm-hmm. and he was like a he was a Trump fan, mm-hmm. which is fine, but he had some issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure, sure Mr. Biden, I'm, I'm not the biggest Biden fan. I did vote for him because, uh, to me, he was the better of the, of the two, but, um, he certainly has had issues. He's a, he's a consummate politician, he's never worked a real job in his life, uh, that I can tell, uh, he's from my home state of Delaware, right? So I should be the big fan. I'm not the biggest Biden fan, but did he have less issues than our, his opponent? I felt so, mm-hmm. um, I don't know that you can get those those far lefts and far rights. Again, I think you can get the the sixty percent together and have a grand old time and get something done and talk politics and how do we fix this then? And but boy, the fringes are tough. The fringes are tough. Yeah, on both sides. And maybe that's been the way it always is. You know, we're just we're more aware of the fringes now. So I I dream of a long table and bringing people down together in and you know. I'm happy to cook. I'm, I'm telling you, it's like I, I would love to see that happen, mm-hmm. but I think you have to start at the center and kind of work out. I think you're right. Yeah. Well, moving on, we're going to start winding the sucker down here. This has been a great conversation, Tom. Um, what are your bucket list items? You've worked your butt off for many years now, and what 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 are some of the things you you want to do, and some of the things you want to you pass along? What are some of the what does the future look like for the work that you want to do? Boy, you know, I've done everything I've ever wanted to do, honestly. So I don't, I don't, um, I've worked super hard and I've lived the grandest lifestyle that I could imagine. Um, uh, I would think the things that for me that are still on the list are things that I don't know about yet. Hmm. Um, you know, I think the things for me is, you know, when I was um, a young father, you know, I just wanted my kid to think I was a good guy when I was 60 years old and she was 30 years old. I think she thinks that. So I feel very successful. I wanted to um, have a successful family life. You know, marriage is hard. <laughs> it's not as hard as farming, but it's hard. And so uh, I, I can't tell you how much I love and appreciate my wife for hanging with me for 38 years through all this craziness of running 20 businesses. Mm. Um, and, you know, she's run them too. So, uh, I don't have a bucket list. I think they're nonsense, honestly. I think there's something that if uh, if it's on your list, go do it. Uh, and it's, if it's out of your range, then it shouldn't be on your list because that's just frustrating. Uh, just just get up and do stuff. I love the answer of um, something I haven't thought of yet. Yeah. That is something I've been pondering a lot lately is the inherent nature of change in life. And mm-hmm. the sooner you come to embrace that, that things will change. Things mm-hmm. die. They grow. They they're reborn. That's a beautiful thing, and there and it gives a lot of hope. Like there's 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 stuff down the road to yeah. be excited about. Well, did you know the pandemic was coming? Nope. Uh, have you? Has everything that's come out of the pandemic been a terrible thing? 
No. For you? No. Have you learned more about yourself? Oh, infinitely. Right. And your wife? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, have, uh, watching my kid deal with it, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, watching my family, my sisters dealing with it. Some of them are in healthcare, first responder types. It's amazing what's going on. And so not that I would, wouldn't want to trade everyone that's been harmed by it, but mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, these are, this are life issues and we've got to deal with it. And, and let's move forward. I, I'm definitely a fan of moving forward. Me too. Well, we have reached the bonus round, okay. and uh, everybody goes through this little crucible here. I didn't know it's I was part really of a fun. group here. What do you mean everybody? Who's everybody? All the guests on the show. Oh, I didn't know. You're, you're number 33. Ah, well, see? It's a good... I think I was number 20, and then we had to redo it. We did. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We had a technical... Thank God we have a producer here. Yes, now. exactly. Thank you, Patrick. We had, a, uh, we had some technical mishaps. Um, now, this is particularly germane to our region right now, but we're going to pretend that uh, your house were in the path of a flooding river, and you could only extract one physical mm-hmm. thing from the house with the time you had. What would that physical thing be? Probably my Chevy Tahoe. It's <laughs> <laughs> a large lift. That's my lifeline. <laughs> yeah. That's my lifeline. That's funny. Uh, no, what would it be? Uh, I know what you're asking. I, I don't have anything, you know... Uh, I am a move forward person, and I and I well, I appreciate the, all the beautiful photographs and everything that I have, and my awards, and uh, you know the the um, you know the uh, timeline of my life mm. that's up on my office wall or wh- whatever. None of that stuff is important to me. So, uh, if there was anything, uh, anyone physically in my house, whoever it was, uh, I would get them out. Perfect. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I know your whereabouts when I see the Chevy Tahoe and I saw your Panama hat and I was like, there's Tom, he's yep, parked exactly. up right up front. All right. So, um, let's now call it your spiritual house. Mm-hmm. More about like metaphysical, what makes you, you, if you could take two traits about yourself, just cause you could only grab two in that time, mm-hmm. what would those two traits be? Well, I don't know that I have two good traits. Uh-huh. I would say that the traits that, um, that I... I'm most proud of I w- is my effort. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try to get up every day and not let one person out effort me. Uh, they might be a better cook. They might be a much better artist. You know, I write a bit, so it might be a better writer, whatever, but nobody's going to work harder at it than I will. And that's uh, something I try to do every day, get up and show up. Uh, another trait would be that um, I'm a fair person. Yeah, I try to give everyone a fair shot. And uh, if you... <laughs> the hardest thing in the world to do is get fired by my company because uh, I just I want to bend over backwards to make sure that we've given you every opportunity to succeed. And it's why we say things like, uh, you know, you hear like terms like secret shopper, hmm. you know, which is like a term for when you, you send somebody undercover into your restaurant to see how things are going. It's like we call it shopping for success. I want to I don't want to bring anybody down. I want to build them up and I want them to be the happiest people they can be for the rest of their life. And that's, um, sometimes that's difficult. Some people just don't want to be happy, it turns out. Yeah. yeah. I've seen that guiding. It's yeah. like, it's a very small percentage, but yeah. there are just some folks that are just bound yeah. and determined to have a and bad And, you know, time. We, uh, my friend Pamela kind of said, I watched her fire somebody one time because it was the hardest thing for me to do. And she just put her arm around him and she said, you know, there's got to be a better match for you out there. Let's think of some things that really you want out of your life and you want to s- succeed at. And the guy's getting fired, but she put it in a way that was so positive and so uh, reassuring that uh, I just love that. Pamela's awesome. Yeah. Um, is there, lastly, is there anything you'd leave behind in the flood to get swept away, purified, removed from? Obviously, outside of my family, they can have it all. Let it burn. And maybe I would feel differently if it burned. Mm. Uh, but, you know, my house uh, burned when I was a kid. Then we had to uh, mm. move out. My brother set it on fire doing something stupid. <laughs> but um, cleaning <laughs> bottle caps next to the furnace with, uh, with uh, you know, acetone or something. Oh, my like God. Uh, anyway, uh, let's move forward. You know, let's, mm. let's fix the world's problems. I can't do that with my past. I can mm. only do that with my future. So let's fix the world's problems. I'm with you. All right. Um, if folks want to get involved with the work that you're doing, if folks 
God willing, want to come and work for your team, uh-huh. how do they get involved and how do they follow? Where do they go to follow you? Yeah, they can just go to tomdouglas.com. We have an employment section from that perspective. If they want to come do one of our Grilling for Good events where we take money, we buy all the product, and then we sell it to you at double the price, and then all that money goes to the food bank or the Ballard Food Bank or something like that, That's just keep an eye on our website for, for situations like that. And if you uh, ever want to just come hang out, the best thing to do with me hanging out, and uh, if you want to get to know me more or vice versa, uh, is take a class that I teach because uh, that is two or three hours of direct time that uh, you can, uh, we can hang out. And they're super fun. Yeah, it's much more difficult for me to walk through a dining room in one of my restaurants and like sit down for an hour. Mm-hmm. But in the class situation, I can have that interaction. It's much more fun. Tom Douglas. James Beard, award-winning chef, restaurateur, good friend, mentor. Thank you, sir, for being here today, and uh, we'll see you down the trail. Absolutely. Good luck on your fishing. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, You can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.